Good day, fam. Welcome to another episode of Storytime with Dave. I am your host, Dave, and this is no ordinary episode, folks. It's a very special episode for us. It is the 200th episode of Storytime with Dave, and I saw this looming on the horizon as I put these out. I knew that it was coming up, and I knew I wanted to do something special, and you know, the stars kind of aligned for us here, where it it just ended up being perfect. January 6th, the 200th episode. It is, you know, I couldn't think of a better topic to discuss and day to do it than today. So I'm very excited about about this episode and the last episode. You should go listen to that. That was only two days ago. And that is a fire episode. That's really good. So what are we going to do today? We're going to talk about January 6th. We're going to talk about democracy because obviously everyone on the the fake news media um, describes it as a horrible attack on democracy. And it's interesting, you know, I would argue that our government has become so corrupt and our supposed democracy, and I, I guess it is, but kind of just the idea of democracy not really being all it's hyped up to be. Obviously, from a young age, we are inundated with American propaganda, how great our system of government is, the system of checks and balances that no longer really exists the way it did at the beginning. Um, And just kind of uh, how warped things have become to the extent that I would argue that an attack on democracy in in this sort of thing that happened on that day, on January 6th, on this day, one year ago, I would argue it's more self-defense. You know what I mean? I would argue that any kind of uh, uprising against the government at this point is actually an act of self-defense. So I would say, you know, well, that's what I would say about it. And we're going to get into why that is. I am going to play some clips from, you know, the the usual suspects. We got a little Rachel Maddow. We got a little Liz Cheney. We got a little uh, other MSNBC guy. I forget his name. And, and then I'm going to also read a little bit of Anatomy of the State, some excerpts from Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard. It was a really polarizing day because you had, you know, a, a large subset of the of our uh, beautiful and incredible democratic republic citizens just overwhelmed with fear and disgust and contempt for those responsible for the greatest attack on our democracy since the Revolutionary War. Or maybe it was the Civil War. I forget what they say. I keep, you know what's funny? I say that sometimes, like as a joke, the greatest attack on our democracy since the Revolutionary War, and people like don't even notice. They're like, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, I don't really talk to many people like that. I remember on that day last year, I went on Facebook and I said, dude, this is hilarious. I think verbatim that was the post that I made. I said, dude, this this is hilarious. And I received two texts from cousins saying, fuck you. 
It was ridiculous. I mean, it is, it really put on display the emotional and, you know, the reactive nature of the democratic, and I mean that as in the party, the Democrats in this nation. It really put it on full display. They are very emotional. They are very, because I even saw, and I, I remember, you know, going through, and I even went, um, I was about to make a post on my Instagram story today, and it did one of those flashback things. It said, hey, do you want to post this that you posted a year ago? And I, I had shared a status from a leftist, a socialist, saying, can you believe the MAGA guys are the ones doing the revolution? And he was upset that it wasn't the people on the left. I mean, he was like, can you believe? We always talk about revolution. We meaning he's speaking on behalf of socialists. He's like, we always talk about revolution. We don't do anything about it. And these MAGA people are actually, you know, consulting or, or they're uh, confronting, I mean, the problem at its source. You know, when they when they uh, went to the Capitol building, I mean, that's where a lot of this stems from, obviously. So there were even leftists who were not only not upset by it, but they they were like, this is a good thing. I mean, I think that that is another distinction. I always try to draw a distinction between leftists who are socialists and even communists. I have more respect for communists than for establishment Democrats who have no principles, at least the communist has principles, even though I disagree with them. So that was what was interesting. I mean, it was seeing these people who are leftists saying, no, this isn't such a bad thing. And I, for one, think that it, it was high time that our legislators um, had a little fear struck into their hearts. They should know that they are accountable to the people and they can't keep stealing from us and, uh, you know, subverting the Constitution and things of that nature. They can't continue to get away with it without bothering the people so much that, they, that we show up and we say, hey, what's going on here? What are you guys up to, huh? What's going on in that building? What are you doing today? How are you taking more rights away from us today? So it was a, I think it was... Um, you know, overall, I think it was a good day. And I expressed that last year in the aftermath and even during, as I said, I thought it was funny. I mean, there was a dude, the, the Q shaman, like that was funny. You know, I mean, you, you can, you could take a step back and acknowledge that that was a funny thing, that it was pretty funny. And really it wasn't violent. I mean, you know, sure there were some scuffles, but let's be honest, it wasn't violent. And I, I think I've mentioned this on a podcast not so long ago. If you look up the 1954 Capitol shooting, you know, those were Puerto Rican dissidents who were, um, I don't know what exactly prompted these Puerto Rican revolutionaries to show up at the Capitol building and to shoot multiple uh, congressmen, but they did. So even just that one example, that single example, and there are many more examples of things sort of like that happening. You can even go to um, the Occupy Wall Street movement when they went into the Capitol building 
same sort of thing. I mean, they were just politically left-leaning rather than politically right-leaning. But even at that point, and that was 10 years ago, the media had not fully become the demonic thing that it is today. I mean, the media has always been bad. And you can go back even to the CPI, which is the Committee on Public Information. And that was in the lead up to World War One to change public opinion from being against the war to being for the war. And that was started by Woodrow Wilson, who is arguably the worst president we've ever had between the Federal Reserve, the creation of the Federal Reserve, and the entry into World War One, the creation of the League of Nations, which did fail, but ultimately set the groundwork for what would become the United Nations and this globalist cabal. So the media has always been bad, but obviously it's never been as bad as it is now. <clears throat> so let's hear what they're saying about it. Let's talk about it. Um, and then, and then, like I said, we'll read a little bit of Anatomy of the State by R Murray Rothbard. I'll do a full episode on that where we go through the whole book. I mean, it's more of a pamphlet and it's pretty short. And uh, But it's worth, like, you really should just pick it up for $5 on thrift books and just read it yourself. But I'll take out the excerpts that I think are important and I'll read through them and we'll have a good time. So I don't know where I want to start here. Hang on one moment. I just wanted to grab a water. We remember what happened last episode. Even though it was fire and I was going hard, I didn't have a sufficient water supply. But I have a big bottle of water here. I'm taking a sip. And this will be crucial in terms of the flow of the episode and for my voice. So they'll say this is the worst attack on democracy since the Civil War. There are comparisons to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. And I would only, um, the only way in which I can see similarities between January 6th, 9-11 and Pearl Harbor is that it was allowed to happen. And the degree to which the feds, the deep state, the CIA, or what have you were involved is unknown, but it's certainly there. The extent to which they were involved, we don't know. But the fact that they were involved is undeniable. We know that for a fact. If you look at Pearl Harbor, FDR had advanced knowledge that it was going to happen. He kept, uh, sorry about that. He kept uh, the troops stationed there when he could have moved them. He could have taken them back to the mainland. We knew that there were Japanese threats. We're going to bomb Pearl Harbor. Even a, as, as close, if I'm not mistaken, it was even the very week that it happened. FDR was aware almost down to the hour that it was going to happen. He allowed it to happen, happen because politicians are willing to break a few eggs, say 3,000, in order to make war. And the same thing happened in 9-11. Now, 
we obviously should do an entire episode on 9-11 and all the strange things that that surround that day with regards to the government. Did they know? Did they execute it? Were there even hijackers? You know what I mean? I mean, these are questions. These are legitimate questions. Obviously, someone who's a sort of a Democrat NPC, but even a Republican NPC would go, that's ludicrous. But obviously they wouldn't be willing to look into any of the evidence. They'll just bury their heads in the sand and continue to living to live their lives as though it was a uh, Muslim terror attack. And, and that's just fine. They can do that. So we know that feds were involved as well on January 6th. There were agent provocateurs, FBI agents, FBI informants, I mean, the works. And they're always involved, and it doesn't matter if it's right-wing or left-wing. They do this with left-wing movements. They did it with the Black Panthers. They do it with Antifa. They do it with everyone. They did it with the riots that took place in the summer of 2020. This is what they do. They need to justify their existence. I mean, that's a big part of it, and that's why you have Um, operations like the attempted kidnapping of Governor Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. Um, Sorry, I just got a text message. I looked at my phone. It's like when we look at the Governor Whitmer thing, it was like more than half of the people involved in that were FBI informants. So the FBI needs to justify the money that they get from the government. They need to justify their existence. Why do we even need the FBI anymore? And that's a question that's been raised by senators and congressmen and even presidents in the past. And the same goes for the CIA. And so they create problems so they can solve the problem so they can go, see, we did it. You need us. You need us. And so whenever something like this happens, they see it as an opportunity. I'm not saying that they organized the entire thing. I mean, Trump was going to have a rally. He drew the people in. And, um, you know, you could hear Alex Jones' account of what happened. He talks about it on his show plenty of times. I mean, it's not so easy to find, but you just go on InfoWars. And I'm sure, especially today, I haven't checked yet, but I'm sure he's posted some of those videos of him explaining what happened. And um, so they see it as an opportunity to sow chaos. They don't have to set it up, but they go, okay, there's going to be a lot of people here. They're going to be right by the Capitol building. We understand what the fallout would be if they entered the Capitol building, if they stormed the Capitol building. And so we're going to nudge things in that direction. And uh, it's all for their narrative, their existence, Deep state stuff, you know the you know the drill. It's like that guy who was yelling. I mean, you have videos of that older gentleman, and I forget they they people know his name. I forget what his name is, but he kept yelling at people and and pushing people to go into the Capitol building. He was outside in the whole rigmarole. Did I use that word right? He was he was in the the crowd, and he's really trying to persuade people to go into the building yelling we need to storm the building we need to storm the building interestingly he was not arrested they seem to have uh 
not really they they seem to have been very happy to arrest anyone who was even mildly involved anyone who even stepped inside to just walk around and yet this gentleman who was clearly inciting what ended up happening he was never arrested hmm that's curious i wonder if he's a fbi informant i wonder if he was working on behalf of the government curious just one of many questions from that day so let's go and get into what they're talking about here um i want to start with this fella ali let's just listen to him it's msnbc uh i don't know how much of it we'll listen to i'll play little chunks we'll go through it we'll figure out just how egregiously they're lying and uh sort of do some deconstruction shout out no agenda Good evening once again, I'm Ali Velshi. Day 351 of the Biden administration. Just under an hour from now, it will be exactly one year from the day we all watched in real time as a mob marched to the Capitol, launched a siege on the building, and then tried to stop the duly elected president from- I actually wanna stop it right there. See, we're already right out the gate. Interesting use of the word siege. So what is a siege? Um, I brought up the definition here because I was like, it didn't, was it a siege? I don't think he's even using that word correctly. And this could just be stupidity on the part of Ali here, Ali, or uh, his writing staff. Because what is a siege? Um, The definition of a siege is a military blockade of a city or fortified place to compel it to surrender. Um, the second definition, which could work, I suppose, would be a persistent or serious attack. Persistent certainly would not apply here because it was one day and then it was done. Uh, siege is usually something that takes place over multiple days, multiple weeks, multiple months, or even multiple years. That's what a siege is. You know, when you look at, um, military history, for example, you know, military blockades of Germany in both World War I and World War II to prevent supplies from entering the country. That's a siege. I mean, even back back in the day, like medieval times, if there was a castle, you would surround the castle, not allowing anyone in or out, so they couldn't get supplies. And so after long enough, if you could, if the sieging army could sustain themselves and their troops longer than the people in the castle eventually the people in the castle would go we give up siege successful that's what a siege is and note the word military blockade military in the use of the word siege so they're distorting all of this language to try to make it something more than what it actually was there was no siege here the military was not involved It wasn't persistent. It was one day. It was a few hours, and then it was over. There was no, like, surrender. What did they want? I mean, you know, even still, even if they wanted the election overturned, even if that was the goal, it wouldn't be to compel Congress to surrender. I guess it would be for them to surrender to the fact that Joe Biden's not president, but it wouldn't be like to surrender to citizens arrest them or something. I mean, it's like, it's just a misuse of the word siege. So we're, 
you know, we're uh, 15 seconds into the video and we're already seeing some distortion of the facts. Let's continue. Being formally declared the winner of the election. It was a scene most of us could never imagine happening in America. Earlier today, one of the Capitol Police officers who took the brunt of the attacks from supporters of Donald Trump summed up where things stand a year later. It's hard to believe that it's been a year, uh, but here we are still trying to figure out exactly what happened. Both President Biden. Wow, very insightful stuff. I guess he was one of the security guys there. Very insightful stuff. Here we are a year later, still trying to figure out what happened. Wow. I mean, I'm so glad we have heroes like that fella and their incredible insights. I'm glad we got him on the news. Taking a sip of water. Two sips. You know, why was there no, why wasn't there protection? I mean, when the riots were going on in 2020 in the summer, the BLM riots, largely in response to the George Floyd murder, um, they had, you know, I don't know if it was military but they had a lot of protection at the Capitol and all around Washington, D.C. What compelled them to have virtually no protection for the Capitol building? Only very, very, a very small number of security guards were there. I wonder if that points to them allowing it to happen and kind of wanting it to happen. Again, more evidence, glaring evidence. And how do you answer that question? And if the answer is because Trump wouldn't let them, I just don't know that that holds water. I mean, do they even have to consult with Trump? If the Washington DC police force said, oh wow, there's a lot of people, maybe we should head over there to make sure there's not a bunch of chaos ensuing. Were they told not to do that specifically? Do we have any evidence of that? And wouldn't that be bombshell evidence if they found it? Wouldn't that be all they were talking about? So clearly they haven't, they don't have that information. So it's a possibility, I suppose. (laughs) But then here's another point, and I heard them talking about this on NPR when I was listening to No Agenda the other day. They had played a clip of this guy saying, um, what we're worried about is potentially another January 6th happening in 2024 based on nothing, just this fella's hunch. They had some military guy on MSNBC, I mean, on NPR, what's the difference? And uh, he was just on his hunch, something like this might happen. And he said, next time the military might be involved too, meaning the military would participate in an attempted coup. And that would actually be an attempted coup if the military was involved, or at least an insurrection. So he is asserting that the military would be willing to, or at least parts of the military or individuals within the military would be willing to go against commands from their higher ups, whether that be the president of the United States or 
you know, their commanding generals, whoever, that these people would be willing to subvert direct orders in order to participate in a coup. Well, wouldn't the same, couldn't you use the same logic and say that they, that there would be individuals in the military who would do the opposite, who perhaps received orders to, you know, who had maybe received orders to not go and defend the Capitol and for them to go, no, I'm disobeying these orders because I care about protecting my democracy. And for them to show up and try to quell what was taking place. So the fact that they didn't do that is not good evidence for the fact that they would then participate in a coup, a far more serious situation. Don't you think? I mean, I should have gotten that clip of that guy saying that because it's ridiculous. So let's continue. I don't know how much longer we'll do here because then we'll move on to Chuck Schumer and Liz Cheney and hear what they're saying. So let's see if there's any good stuff here. And I won't dwell on it too much and then we can move on. And then Vice President Harris will speak to the nation tomorrow. The after, this afternoon, the White House gave us a preview of Biden's remarks. I would expect that President Biden will lay out the significance of what happened at the Capitol and the singular responsibility President Trump has for the chaos and carnage that we saw. And he will forcibly push back on the lies spread by the former president in an attempt to mislead the American people and his own supporters, as well as distract from his role in what happened. Democratic members of Congress. Okay, um, did was he? So she's saying he was solely Trump was solely responsible. I don't understand how you could make that argument when he did not tell them to storm the Capitol. He told them to stop. You know, I mean, I guess it wasn't um, it wasn't as passionate as they would have liked it to be when he told them to stop. But he did. If anything, he's responsible for bringing people there for a rally. Sure, that that works. That's fine. You, you could say that. And I, I wouldn't push back against that. But to say he's solely responsible, and then it's like upside down world, it's clown world, truly, when when the spokeshole is lying and talking about refuting the lies of the former president by lying about his involvement and his, you know, how much responsibility he has for it. But obviously Jen Psaki is very well trained in the art of lying. And she's one of the most skilled um, press secretaries I've seen since I've been paying attention to politics. It's pretty impressive. Let's continue here. Moving on. We'll also mark the anniversary of the insurrection with several events on Capitol Hill. Republican leaders are not expected to take part. The Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, uh, and, and a bipartisan group of senators made <laughs> plan to travel to Atlanta to attend the funeral of the late Senator Johnny Isaacson, uh, Senate Minority Leader, of course. Trump loyalists and House members Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates will weigh in with their own views of January 6th with what they're calling a, quote, Republican response. Meanwhile, demands for accountability with regard to the Capitol riot are growing louder and they're being increasingly directed 
to the Biden Justice Department. As the New York Times asks, quote, will the Justice Department move beyond charging the rioters themselves? The rioters, the rioters themselves. He said that's so weird. I mean, what happened? Like, what truly was the fallout of that day? What was the fallout besides Ashley Babbitt being killed? I mean, there were other, there were a few other people that died, and um, none of it was, none of those deaths are actually attributed to anyone. I think there were heart attacks. So I guess it was because of all the excitement and stuff. And so you can make a case that perhaps the January 6th riot was indirectly led to a few, I think in total there were five deaths, right? But the only violent death was the killing of Ashley Babbitt. And I don't know if you saw this, but I shared it on my Instagram story. My Instagram is dnamery, D-name-R-Y. Most of you probably follow me, but I share this stuff all the time. I got an ill story, but they're actually suppressing it heavy. I used to get on average like 200 views per story, and now I get about 25. Um, and that's been going on for a few weeks now, ever since I got fact checked like three times in a week. Anyway, I saw this is an article from the independent Ashley Babbitt rammed SUV three times into car of future husband's girlfriend. And this was published on January 3rd, 2022. So just three days ago. And so obviously this is a character assassination attempt on Ashley Babbitt, who was murdered by Capitol Police. She wasn't a threat. She didn't have a weapon. But she was shot and killed. And so what do they do? They do the same thing that the Republicans do with George Floyd. Now, if you're like me, and you're, you know, only political out of necessity, it's like the only reason, and I've said this before, hang on, Sip, the only reason that I am more anti-Democrat than I am anti-Republican is because the Democrats are a bigger problem right now. It doesn't mean that the Republicans aren't still a problem. They are. I tell you this all the time. But the Democrats are a bigger problem. If I was doing this podcast in the, year was, in the years 1995, I would be very anti-Republican. If the years 2001 or 2002, I would be very anti-Republican. I would be probably pro or at least not as anti-Democrat as I am right now. So, when the Republicans were doing that with George Floyd and they were talking about all the crimes he had committed to sort of try to justify Derek Chauvin killing him, and, you know, like, I don't even like to get into this stuff too much because it's I don't really care that much about it. I mean, I'm across the board, generally anti-police because they are law enforcement and the lawmakers are the most corrupt people in our society. So the enforcers of that law, of those laws, are complicit. But it's more of a broad argument against policing rather than specific incidents, but obviously they're extremely relevant. So anyway... What were the Republicans doing? They were saying, no, it's fine that they killed George Floyd because he's a bad guy. And, 
you know, I'm like, I'm an anarchist for the most part. And I don't think we should have a government. And, um, I'm not really so interested, or I wasn't at the time, and I'm still not, in the Republican arguments trying to justify police killing George Floyd by saying, no, 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 but wait, he was a bad guy. It's not, I don't care about that. It doesn't matter if he's a good guy. It doesn't matter if he's a bad guy. They shouldn't have done what they did. The, the, the irony of a democratic publication or a left-leaning publication, and I, I say left-leaning loosely, and you should know by now what I mean when I say that in a derogatory sense, is, um, although I guess I would also describe socialists in a derogatory sense, but that would be a different thing. The irony of the establishment people who were aghast at Republicans trying to assassinate the character of George Floyd to... to justify what the police did to him and now employing the exact same tactics i mean exactly the same the independent saying ashley babbitt rammed suv three times in the car of future husband's girlfriend to justify her murder it is beyond parody you know you cannot make this stuff up so that's what's going on and you'll see more articles like that because what was really the fallout of that day? Ashley Babbitt was murdered, that, and they put up a fence. I mean, that's what's different before January 6th and after January 6th. Ashley Babbitt's murdered. They throw a bunch of people in jail. They keep a lot of them in solitary confinement. They hold them for too long. They're entitled to a speedy trial under the Constitution. The, the, the Justice Department does not abide by that. Most of the fallout is negative for the people who are involved. So this idea that they need to be, we need to have people held accountable. They've been overly held accountable, if anything. They've been overly held accountable, and we should take it easy because nothing really happened. There was a stroll through the Capitol building. People took some pictures. Some guy put his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. That's what happened. Oh, yeah, and... AOC was brutally murdered by the QAnon shaman. I forgot about that. And obviously we all mourn for AOC and we're sorry that she was killed on that day. But besides that, there's really no fallout from it. Nothing happened. Except for the government using it as an excuse to widen the scope of what is a domestic terrorist. They're probably doing more surveillance as a result of that, but that would be classified. They're going to employ this against American people like people like me making a podcast like this, perhaps. And certainly they're going to use it against if, you know, there's some sort of resurgence of Black Lives Matter, of that movement, more protests in the fallout of maybe another police killing, which probably is something that will happen. I mean, call me crazy, but I kind of have a feeling that something like that will probably happen in 2022, maybe 2023. And if there's more protests and riots as a result, they're going to use this new power that they have, that they swindled out of the January 6th nonsense, and they're going to use it against 
the BLM movement. I mean, that's just like, there's a lot of people too who are pro BLM, but understand the history of like COINTELPRO and the Black Panthers and even more recently than that. But seeing the way that the state will use an event to justify an expansion of their powers only to use it against protest movements like the BLM movement that was going on that still exists, but it's been more quiet as of late. So there's even people within that movement who recognize this for what it is, which is just an attempt at an expansion of power by the federal government. Um, Let's continue a little bit more with this fella and we'll move on. Today, the Attorney General Merrick Garland tried to respond to the mounting pressure on his department. During a speech, Garland gave something of an update on the ongoing criminal investigation into the riot and noted that more than 700 people have been arrested and charged. He then vowed to pursue everyone who might have been involved in the insurrection. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable whatever that guy's just still mad he's not on the supreme court and i i would say i'm happy that he's not on the supreme court i mean obviously it's like what i'm most concerned about with the supreme court at least right now is with all the vaccine mandates will they be struck down of course they should be but will they be i don't know we'll see what happens because a lot of these people who are on the supreme court that everyone thought would be these hyper conservative libertarian types they don't actually behave that way they act more establishment or as establishment as the left-leaning justices on the supreme court so i have no faith in the supreme court but i think merrick garland is still probably pretty salty that he's not there where he thinks he should be let's hear what liz cheney has to say about all this and um and, and uh, we'll rant about that a little bit. Let's see. She was on today. I haven't heard this yet, but I know that Liz is always delivering nonsense. So I'm sure this will be no exception. Let's see what she has to say. With us now exclusively is Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, the top Republican on the Congressional Committee investigating the insurrection. Congresswoman Cheney, good morning to you. Good morning, Savannah. I've never known you to be one for big emotions, but as you sit here today, one year later, and consider how close did we come in this country? How close did we come to the violent overthrow of a valid election? Can you even believe asking a question like that and watching? Oh my God, like, did anyone actually think that you have to be so, so brainwashed to think that there was any remote, it's so funny. Oh my God, it's so funny. It's so funny. When you make the argument, this is what all the bots and the NPCs say. When you make the argument that, you know what, we should do something about the government, whether it's left or right. When you say, we should do something about the government, we should over whatever, we should overthrow, whatever it is. They'll go, oh, but the government has nukes, so you can't do that. They'll which obviously that is a stupid argument because they never think about the, what a lot of people do when they make like that sort of hypothetical or philosophical argument about these types of topics is they never think it through past what they're saying. 
They never think about what the outcome would be. You know, like, let's say, let's say January 6th happens, right? Like, just the same way it did with people storming the Capitol. And then a bunch of military showed up and shot and killed everyone there. What do you think the fallout of that would be? Ask yourself that question. What do you think if, um, you know, and it does, again, it does not have to be MAGA people. It could just as well be Antifa people, or it could just as well be BLM people. Let's say they take over a state building. Let's say they make, or even let's say this, uh, some sort of militia group makes a little, uh, somewhere in fucking, I don't know, like Nebraska or Montana, they say, we are going to be a sovereign nation. We are going to no longer abide by the government. We're, we're armed and we are making, and they make like a little community and they are no longer paying taxes. They're no longer participating as though they are governed by the United States government. And let's say the United States government says, okay, you want to do that? And they drop a bomb on this little town that was created by these militia people. What do you think the fallout would be? You know, they never asked themselves that question. What would the fallout be? You talk about, well, the government has nukes. Okay, what would the fallout be if the government used nuclear weapons on American citizens? You know, in America, what would the fallout be? I mean, it's such a stupid argument, but they don't see why it's a stupid argument because they're not thinking about a second after it happens. All they're thinking about is the moment that it happens, but not the second after or the day after or the week after. Don't you think you might have a bigger problem on your hands? Because all the people who say, oh, come on, they're not gonna do that. It's like you've got plenty of people who are like, we have to do something now before it's too late. But you have way more people who are sympathetic to that, but say, no, they're not actually going to do anything. Well, what happens if they actually do something? Because then you've turned that small, small minority group of anti-government revolutionaries into a sizable chunk. I mean, you just consider, let's say you have like 1% of the population saying, we need to do something now. We need to revolt against the government before it's too late. And then the government actually killing those people. What do you think would be, everyone would go, okay, that's it. All right, well, they're dead. No, you might turn that one, what was 1% into like 20%. And then you've got a real problem on your hand with millions of people who are now going, oh, it's past too late. Now we have to do something. And then what happens? You know what I mean? So it's like people say things like that and they just, they just don't think it through at all. But also it's like the idea that they could believe something is ludicrous or, or not see the hilarity of a woman asking, how close were we to losing our democracy in the attempted coup where there were no weapons, where a bunch of people showed up unarmed? How close were we where the the military was not involved whatsoever. How close were we to losing our democracy? I mean, it's laughable if it wasn't so disturbing, you know what I mean? But I guess it's both. We came very close, our institutions held, but they- We came very close. I mean, what, they took a stroll through the Capitol building. This to Liz Cheney is coming very close to losing our democracy. 
which again would probably be a good thing, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, this lady is, I mean, isn't it, is it Dick Cheney's daughter? Who is Liz Cheney? I think that's his daughter, right? So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Obviously, Dick Cheney, master of propaganda, heavily involved in 9-11, you know, I mean, just an absolute scumbag. Um, I want to see, is it, uh, Cheney is the elder daughter of, yeah, Dick Cheney. So that's his daughter. So yeah, clearly Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This woman is a, uh, she's an enemy of the state. Like again, if you, and I'm not advocating for this, I am not advocating for this. I know that just in case the FBI starts going through any podcast that's talking about January 6th, leave me alone. I'm not advocating for this. But what I'm saying is, to my argument earlier, I think an argument could be made that if an insurrectionist had got their hands on Liz Cheney, I'm not advocating for it, but you could make the argument that it's kind of self-defense, right? I mean, you see what I'm saying, right? Only held because of the people who uh, were willing to stand up against the pressure from former President Trump. People at his own Department of Justice who stood up to him, elected officials at the state level who stood up to him, uh, and uh, the law enforcement officers here at the Capitol. You just had Harry Dunn on, uh, people like Harry, Mike Fanone, uh, 140 uh, law enforcement officers who fought uh, at the tunnel to prevent thousands more from breaching the Capitol that day. I mean, what about all the videos of them moving barricades and allowing them through? I don't know what she's talking about. And notice that she's talking about like the heroes in the Department of Justice, the people giving pushback to Donald Trump. Who who were these people? You're not going to name them? I mean, who were these people? What was said to them? What did they say to Donald Trump? How exactly did they push back against this? I get it's a news segment and she's only there for five minutes, but like she's not even going to say one name of someone at the Department of Justice who was responsible for saving our democracy. Wouldn't you want to give them credit, Liz? We came very close uh, and we need to recognize uh, how important it is uh, that the system depends upon individuals uh, and that we make sure that it never happens again. Your co-chair, Benny Thompson, has said we came critically close to the end of democracy as we know it. The president expected to dress the nation and portray our democracy as in a very fragile moment right now, not a year ago, right now. Do you agree? I do. The threat continues. Uh, former President Trump continues to make the same claims that he knows caused violence on January 6th. This is the other thing. It's like, how does, how does the belief that there was fraud, and I don't know if there was, I just assume that there was, because there's no way Joe Biden got 81 million votes. And then again, who knows if Donald Trump actually got 76 million votes. I don't know if that was fraud too. I don't know if there was, I, my assumption based on how corrupt all of these politicians are is that there's a ton of fraud in a presidential election, tons of fraud and whoever commits the fraud better wins. I mean, that's kind of my assumption about how these things go down. But how is it anti-democratic to say, I think there was fraud, especially if there is some evidence of fraud, like whether or not it turned an election, there is certainly evidence out there of fraud. Some of it's pretty small scale, you know, like people ballot harvesting or like throwing out ballots, things like that. But 
how is making an uh, uh, accusation of fraud based on some evidence anti-democratic? Because to me, that would be pro-democratic. Committing fraud would be anti-democratic. But to call out what you think appears to be fraud, to me, at, at, it's certainly not anti-democratic to say that. I mean, I get if there was just, but see, this is the problem because they say there's no evidence and they're baseless claims. I mean, how many times have you heard that phrase? Baseless claims. And that is obviously based on no evidence. So I just don't understand what's anti-democratic about it. And when they say lose our democracy, what does that mean exactly? Like what, what does that mean? Again, like what would have happened if they just stayed in the Capitol building? You just have these people in the Capitol building. Like you think, Jake Angeli, the Q shaman, becomes the president then? Does he become the dictator? I mean, the, the ability for them to tiptoe around the fact that without military cooperation, a coup is not possible is incredible. And for them to even remotely, look, you want to know what a close call at losing your democracy is? if there was an attempted military coup that was then quelled by other parts of the military. Like we have different branches of our military. And let's say, I don't know, the Marines decided to stage a coup and then the Air Force and the Army stopped the coup. That would be a close call at a coup. That would be a close call. If you had an entire branch of the military, I'm not trying to say that the, the Marines are are trying to stage a coup. But if you had, that would be a close call. You could actually, and I would, I would go, hmm, you know what? Yeah, that, that is a close call then. But having a hundred people in the Capitol building or whatever it was, 400 people in the Capitol building without weapons, what, what do you, what, and, and losing the democracy? I mean, if this is a, this is fiction. This is all fiction. And yet it's on the news, but it's, it's fictitious. I mean, like once again, it's like making a statement and just not thinking it through whatsoever as to what would be the next part of that. Oh, we don't know. What if they, what if they didn't leave the building? Okay. They'd just be there. And then you'd just get more police there and they would all get arrested. Would that be losing the democracy? I don't, it's so, it's, it's so, oh my God. And like people like my parents will watch this and just eat it up. Oh my God. We were so close. We almost lost it. We, we almost lost her. We almost lost her democracy. There was like 400 people there. And what am I like a horns on a helmet? We were so close to losing our democracy on that day because the military wasn't involved at all. Uh, and, and it's very important if you look at what's happening today in my party and the Republican Party, uh, rather than reject uh, what happened on the 6th, reject the lies about the election um, and make clear that a, a president who engaged in those activities can never be president again. Uh, unfortunately, too many in my own party uh, are embracing that former president, are looking the other way, are minimizing the danger. That's how democracies die. Uh, and we simply uh, cannot let that happen. The committee in Congress that is investigating. <clears throat> this reminds me of something. 
you know, first of all, if I were to say, if I was to say, I think there's a lot of suspicious things that happened in the 2020 election. I think there was fraud. I have no doubt that Joe Biden did not receive 81 million votes. I don't even think he received a million votes. Okay, maybe he received a million votes. He probably received maybe 40 million. I don't know. Because there was a, there's a lot of Democrats who will just vote for, they'll just vote for whoever it is. It doesn't matter who it is. They'll just vote for the Democrat. Same goes for Republicans, obviously. And then people would say that's anti-democratic, to which I would say I, I don't care. I mean, you can call me anti-democratic. I don't think democracy's good. Um... I don't think government's good. So, of course, I don't think a democratic government, you know, I kind of view it like a, this government that we have is perhaps slightly less bad than like a full-blown totalitarian dictatorship. But we already see through Australia and Austria that it's it's not like an absolute bulwark against totalitarianism. It's just not. At the very least, we have a Bill of Rights. But really, if you look at, you know, I, I just explained what happened with my job in the last episode. And, you know, there are asking an employer asking you for your vaccine information is not legal. Does that matter? They're still doing it. Me needing to prove my religious sincerity to my employer is unconstitutional. It goes against the First Amendment. Did that stop them from doing it? No. So it's like, yes, we do have these documents that protect us to an extent, but they'd throw them out the window in a heartbeat. I mean, they're more than willing to do that. So it's not like the democracy that protects us. It's not the form of government we have that, that protects us. It was just the foresight of a few anti-federalists. See, the people who put together the Bill of Rights that actually ends up protecting us from this stuff, those were the anti-federalists, the people who did not want a giant government. And I mean, you know, we could do an episode on that because that's like a very simplification. That's a big simplification of what was going on, but they were anti-federalists who were pulling for this, and they said, fine, you know, when the federalists won, and we were going to have this big federal government, the anti-federalists said, fine, but you better include this Bill of Rights. We will only accept this if you include this Bill of Rights. So it was the anti-government people who were able to provide this. I mean, you know, some of it's like, even like a lot of the anti-federalists were like fine with having it. Whatever, I can't get into that too much, and I need to do more research on that myself. But anyway, this is what I was going to say. They're mad that Trump didn't concede, and they're mad that Trump won't say that there isn't fraud, or that there wasn't fraud, or that Joe Biden was the duly elected president, or whatever they say. I don't think that that's necessarily democratic if you really think that there was fraud. I think that would be anti-democratic for you to just concede and say, fine, we lose. And the perfect example of this would be 2016 and 2020 Democratic primaries where they robbed Bernie. Bernie Sanders won many of those states 
that they gave to Hillary Clinton, especially that they gave to Hillary Clinton in 2016. He won those states. He won the most votes. It was the superdelegates that turned the states to cast their, you know, the state's vote in favor of Hillary Clinton. It was the superdelegates. But the people of the state wanted Bernie. Okay? The democracy at work would have led to Bernie Sanders being the candidate for 2016. And realistically, if that happens, Trump never gets elected because Hillary Clinton's one of the least likable politicians in American history. Bernie Sanders is not. Quite the opposite. He's a populist, the same way that Trump is. And so when Bernie conceded, and let's specifically, we'll look at the 2016 primary because that was more egregious than the 2020 primary, even though that was pretty egregious itself. But in 2016, when Bernie says at the Democratic National Convention, when he says, I fully support uh, Hillary Clinton as the nominee, to me, his concession was anti-democratic. If he wanted to be democratic, if he wanted to fight on behalf of the majority of people who voted, which would be acting in a democratic manner, would it not? Then he would have contested that. And he would have said, no, I'm not going to concede to Hillary Clinton. She didn't win the most votes. If the democracy is to work in this situation, then I cannot concede. Or that would be anti-democratic. I just find that to be, I think that that is an example that even Democrats are willing to hear that out. Even establishment Democrats, to an extent, are willing to hear out the Bernie Sanders thing because we know that they fucked him out of the nomination. We know that. And we know that he got the most votes. So, but it's just another example. It's like there was no, I mean, there's no consistency. There's just no consistency. So, um, let's listen to Liz a little bit longer and then we'll move on to, I might just, maybe we'll just go to anatomy of the state. We don't need to keep doing this. They're all going to be saying the same thing. I'm actually more impressed by what this uh, interviewer, this, you know, news anchor is asking Liz than even what Liz is saying. So let's hear a little more. This matter has already interviewed 300 plus witnesses, looked at 35,000 pages of documents. Big picture first. For those who think maybe this was a protest that got emotional out of control, how high does it go? Have you been surprised or alarmed by anything you have unearthed so far in the committee? You know, we have unearthed new things in every single aspect of our investigation. I'm confident that we'll continue to do so. We've had tremendous cooperation from many, many people, uh, including people in uh, the president's inner circle, people who were in the West Wing that day, people who have come forward to us with information about what they saw and what they know. Uh, and, and I'm confident that cooperation will continue. The committee is absolutely determined to ensure uh, that we understand. Okay, I don't care. Um, that's enough. We don't need to listen to Chuck Schumer. He's a queef. I don't really care. Um, but what I do care about is Murray Rothbard. And uh, let's read a little bit of Anatomy of the State. And you'll fuck with it. I mean, you really will. <laughs> and here's what I'll say just in as a kind of um, 
like me and I was talking to Lauren about this and you try to get this point across to people and it's hard to because it's so counter to all the things that we've been taught, all the ways in which we've been propagandized to believe that the government is a, that we have a truly representative democracy. The idea of a representative democracy is an oxymoron. So let me explain. What is a representative? Someone who represents you. Yes, I know. It's profound. The second that someone stops representing you, they're not your representative any longer. It doesn't matter if your two neighbors are still being represented. If you are not, then you are no longer effectively a member of a democratic republic. You're just in a democracy, but there's nothing republic about it. You know what I mean? It's like, here's the example. If I have to go to court and I need a lawyer, maybe I don't need a lawyer, but I choose to have a lawyer represent me, okay? If the lawyer goes into the courtroom and the lawyer is acting on my behalf and the lawyer is trying to fight for me and I am watching what the lawyer's doing and I'm saying, yes, thank you. This is what I would like to do if I understood the language. Perhaps you don't know all the legal jargon and you don't want to get in over your head in a legal battle or you don't know what to say to a judge exactly, or you don't know what laws apply, you would hire a lawyer to represent you. He is your representative. But what would happen if in the course of events, the lawyer started to act and behave in a way that you did not agree with, and you no longer felt as though you were being represented? You could just fire him and find a new lawyer who would accurately represent your position, okay? So what happens then if a politician says some things and you go, you know what, that sounds like a guy who could represent me. And then like almost every politician in the history of politics, he goes to Congress and then starts acting not on your behalf, but on behalf of maybe the corporations who contributed to his campaign. Or maybe he's being pressured by other people in the party to vote along party lines. And you personally are no longer being represented. What is your recourse? You don't have any. The only recourse is to wait a few years and then vote against him. But what if you're now in the minority? What if enough people are saying, oh, I still like him. And then you say, no, but he's not representing on our behalf any longer. He's no longer our representative. He's just some guy now. He's the representative of corporations. Oh, well, I like him more than the other guy. Okay, well, then you're fucked. But you're no longer represented. There's no representation. Now, here's another point, and these are broader points. The idea of a government being able to enforce things on people, it goes against logic. Because if I can't do it to my neighbor, the idea is this, if we have a democratic republic, no one is higher than the citizen. You know, like we have citizen representation. There's no kings, there's no rulers, right? This is in theory. We do not have kings and rulers. We have representatives who are us. You know, there's supposed to be no difference between you and a congressman. All it is, is the, the town 
or the uh, congressional district coming together and saying, okay, like in my district, it would be Josh Gottenheimer. And we say, okay, Josh, you're going to represent us. But that does not mean that Josh is above us or that Josh has the right to do things that we cannot do to one another. Josh is simply our representative, but he is not put he is not placed above us. He is not our ruler. He is just there to represent our interests, right? So the second that the Congress starts or the president or whatever in a representative democracy starts issuing decrees or forcing people to do things that I cannot do to my neighbor, we no longer have a representative democracy because now we have a ruling class who orders decrees that need to be obeyed. I cannot go to my neighbor's house and say, hey, I need money from you for living on this property. I need property tax. If I can't do that, then the government can't do that because the government is not above me. You know, that's like a principle of libertarianism and anarchism, and it undercuts the legitimacy of governance in general. These are just points I wanted to bring up because it's like this whole democracy thing, it's just all hype. It's not what you think it is. I mean, look around, man. Like, it's not a good system. It infringes upon individual rights. It goes against logic, and it's not a representative democracy. That's the point. It's not actually that. It's just called that. So let's read a little bit of uh, Murray Rothbard here. And it's just like, the only reason I said those things before I start reading it is because just to give you a broader idea of some of the ideas that are in Anatomy of the State and other libertarian or anarchist literature. We must therefore emphasize that we are not the government. The government is not us. The government does not in any accurate sense represent the majority of the people. But even if it did, even if 70% of the people decided to murder the remaining 30%, this would still be murder, and it would not be voluntary suicide on part of the slaughtered minority. No organicist metaphor, no irrelevant bromide that we are all part of one another must be permitted to obscure this fact. If then the state is not us, if it is not the human family getting together to decide mutual problems, if it is not a lodge meeting or country club, what is it? Briefly, the state is that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly on the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. In particular, it is the one organization in society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payment for services rendered, but by coercion. While other individuals or institutions obtain their income, by production of goods and services, and by the peaceful and voluntary sale of these goods and services, sorry. The state obtains its revenue by the use of compulsion, that is, by the use and the threat of the jailhouse and the bayonet. Having used force and violence to obtain its revenue, the state generally goes on to regulate and dictate the other actions of its individual subjects. One would think that simple observation of all states through history and over the globe would be proof enough of this assertion. But the miasma of myth has lain so long over state activity that elaboration is necessary. And it very, it's a very good point. It's like you need to spell these things out 
because after enough time, you don't even think about it. And what Murray is saying, and to, to my example before, is that the state doesn't produce. In an economy, in a free market economy, the way to, to make money is to make something or to provide some kind of service that people then pay for. The state makes its money through taxes and it collects taxes through coercion and compulsion because the only way you, the only thing like the result of not paying your taxes will be that you'll be thrown in jail or it will be if you refuse to go to jail, then the police can kill you. I mean, you, it would turn into a standoff that the police say, no, you, we're here to arrest you because you're not paying your taxes. No, I'm not paying my taxes. I'm not paying my taxes. I won't come out. You know, that could escalate to violence, which would be justified by the state. The state would justify it. And they would say, no, you're not paying your taxes. If I went to my neighbors and I said, hey, you need to give me 10% of the money you make in order to live here. And he said, well, what authority do you have to do? I would say, listen, if you don't do it, I'm going to lock you in my basement, okay? I'll feed you, but you're going to be locked in my basement. It's truly no different. It really is not any different. That's the thing that people need to realize. I'm going to read a little bit more because, like I said, first of all, we're already over an hour, and I just did one two days ago. I'm giving you people so much. But second of all... um. I want to do, I'm going to do like just an episode on this book anyway, but I'll read one more excerpt and we will see what, I don't even know what it's about, but I, I marked it up. I marked the book up with a bunch of, uh, with a bunch of notes and I, I put brackets and shit. Let's see. Um, the great German sociologist, Franz Oppenheimer, Franz, is it Franz? pointed out that there are two mutually exclusive ways of acquiring wealth. One, the above way of production and exchange she called economic means. The other way is simpler in that it does not require productivity. It is the way of seizure of another's goods or services by the use of force and violence. This is the method of one-sided confiscation, of theft of the property of others. This is the method which Oppenheimer termed the political means to wealth. It should be clear that the peaceful use of reason and energy in production is the natural path for man, the means for his survival and prosperity on this earth. It should be equally clear that the coercive exploitative means is contrary to natural law. It is parasitic, for instead of adding to production, it subtracts from it. The political means siphons production off to a parasitic and destructive individual or group. And this siphoning not only subtracts from the number of producing, from the number producing, sorry, the number of people producing, but also lowers the producer's incentive to produce beyond his own substance. In the long run, the robber destroys his own substance by dwindling or eliminating the source of his own supply. But not only that, even in the short run, the predator is acting contrary to his own true nature as a man. So it's like we need to break these things down into like their very basic, basic forms. And so you ask, like, what is a government? 
what is the purpose of a government? It's to try to make a better system for us all to live in. You know what I mean? Like, that's basically what it is. It's like supposed to be a system in which we can all cooperate as a large number of people. We can get along and we can live our lives in the best way that, you know, we think we can. So I think, you know, basically the reason that I read those excerpts and perhaps I could have gotten different excerpts, but like I said, we'll do just keep an eye out for when I do an episode on this book and it'll be these sorts of ideas is just this idea and it bothers me even more than I think most people who think this is all bullshit, the January 6th stuff, is this idea that it was the greatest attack on democracy. And kind of the idea that, like, that's not so bad. And democracy's not so great. And you're not truly representative, represented. And these people who live in Washington, D.C. are not representatives. And the role of government is to steal from you. And the role of government is to prevent you from having any recourse to whatever decision they make. And so when you have a small group of people who are fed up with that, and perhaps not even for the same reason that I am, but willing enough to go down to the Capitol building and to storm the Capitol building without weapons, but kind of just to make a point, I guess it just shows that I think I see it as a more hopeful thing for the idea that more people are kind of starting to get this and more people are starting to think about it in a basic way. What I've noticed in these books about the Federal Reserve that I read especially is that they break down commerce to its most simple form and its simplest terms. They break down commerce to the very, 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 very simple nature of human beings exchanging products and services in a way where it works for everyone involved. And it is the obfuscation of that which leads to the corrupt banking system, the Federal Reserve System, All of the corruption is a result of overcomplicating these things and saying you couldn't possibly understand, and it's something we discussed in the last episode as well, but saying you couldn't possibly understand, you couldn't possibly do this for yourselves. And the government is the, you know, can I say apotheosis? I wonder if I use that word. Can you, would you guys be impressed if I use that word correctly just now? Apotheosis. Exaltation to divine rank or stature, elevation to preeminent or transcendent position, glorification. I guess I didn't use it quite correctly. Maybe I'll try to use it correctly right now. I don't know, whatever. I'm not going to do it. I tried. Sorry. The point is that when we when we view democracy the way that we view it as being this vehicle for the will of the people, when in reality it is exactly the opposite, it is a vehicle for the will of the government. And the government is not you, as mentioned by Murray Rothbard here. 
The government does not represent your interest. And it's way more, that is way more true now than it was when Murray Rothbard wrote this. I mean, it's never been more true than now. And everyone knows this. Everyone knows this, even if they're not willing to admit it. And even my parents, who are full-blown Obama bots, they are MSNBC NPCs. Even my parents, when I say, you know, there's a lot, there's way too much corporate money in government and politicians are more representative of corporations than they are of individuals. Even my parents would say that is absolutely true. So what we need to understand is that when they propagandize an event like January 6th, to bring it back to January 6th specifically, when they propagandize an event like this, when they see their ability to enforce their will upon us and to be able to operate in the most corrupt ways imaginable and be able to get away with it, when they see something like January 6th happen, where the people are starting to catch on to all their bullshit and saying, you know what, we have the numbers though, then what do they need to do? They need to make it seem as though it's an attack on you. That's the point. And that's what all of this propaganda is doing to, to these people who are not so, um, they're not as able to recognize this propaganda as we are because we, we've trained ourselves to recognize these types of things for what they are. But if you're not resilient to that and you haven't been vaccinated against that to use, uh, you know, hey, why, why not? That's a good kind of vaccine. But if you haven't been uh, or immunized, if you will, hmm? how about that? If you're not able to recognize it, then they're able to get away with, and Liz Cheney's able to go on TV and make it seem as though the January 6th rioters were not attacking the corrupt politicians, but instead were attacking you. And that is why they'll continue to get away with these things. And that is why when something like January 6th happens, no one is actually happier than the politicians. Because on the one hand, yes, it is slightly concerning to them, but it's not enough to be truly concerning. And it wasn't actually violent. It was harmless. They know that better than anyone. Chuck Schumer knows that better than anyone. But then they go, we can use this as a justification to further increase our power to make it even less likely for us to get held accountable for all of our corruption and all of the horrible things that we do in Washington, D.C. That's enough for today. Happy January 6th. Happy 200th episode of Storytime with Dave. Thank you for listening. I love you. You know that. Let's keep uh, let's keep our chins up. 2022 feels really good so far. It's on like a very deep level. I am bettering myself already. I feel very clear and I feel really good and good things are happening. And I hope good things are happening for you. And just feel that, dude. Close your eyes and just feel that. There's something different about this year, and it's and it's it's light. It's not dark. The past two years have been very dark, but I feel a little light creeping in, you know what I'm saying? So let's embrace that. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.